This is the Partnership for the Arts talk show, where we talk art. Hello, everyone. This is Victor Gartner, your host for Where We Talk Art. We have an exciting episode today because we have a very well-known, very accomplished artist, Dean Mitchell. And he's going to be talking with us today, answering some questions, sharing some of his insights about the art world and about art. And we'll do that in just a moment. We'll be right back. This is Partnership for the Arts. Come join us. As we explore the world of art. You can find us on our Facebook page at Partnership for the Arts Group Talk Show. Or you can find us on our new website at pftatalkshow.org. PFTA Talk Show is recorded at the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda, Florida. Welcome back. Once again, this is Victor Gartner, your host for Where We Talk Art. And as I said before, we have a very special guest today, Dean Mitchell, artist well-known for his oil paintings and his watercoloring. Dean, thank you so much for agreeing to be here with us. We're, we're not in the same room. I'm at the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda, Florida, and Dean is in his studio, but it's, it's still in Florida. You're in the uh, Tampa area, aren't you? Yeah, Tampa Bay, down in Channelside, Channelside District. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, there is so much I could say about Dean, and I'll start off with a little bio. He was born in 57 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but that's not where he grew up. He grew up in a community of Quincy, Florida. He grew up, he went to art school at the Columbus College of Art and Design in Columbus, Ohio. And now he's very well known for his oil and watercolor paintings of African-Americans reflecting their lives and their culture. Now, his work right now can be found in a variety of places and museums in particular. And I'll, I'll just go down the list of some of the museums where his art is at. He's at the, uh, the Huntsville Museum of Art, Mississippi Museum of Art, Norman Museum of Art, Canton Museum of Art, Gadsden Art Center, and the Library of Congress. Dean also has his own YouTube channel with uh, videos on covering a variety of art-related topics, including a tour of his studio. Uh, and Dean, I'm, I'm really... I'm really excited to have you here. You are certainly an, an exceptional artist and clearly you are very successful. I, I, I think that that success was a result of hard work, growth of you as a person, growth of you as an artist, and you also had to become a businessman. Yes. I, 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 <laughs> I would think, true. could you please share with us uh, the story of your career up to this point? Up to this point. Oh, wow. It's, it's been That's, pretty, easy yeah, <laughs> That's a pretty loaded one. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, it certainly hasn't been a short journey by any stretch. I, you know, you mentioned I grew up in a small rural town, and they do have a art center there, the Gaston Art Center, which I'm in the collection of, which you mentioned. And but at the time I was growing up, there was there was nothing like that. What we did have was a couple of wonderful art teachers that encouraged us, and and I had a grandmother who really got me started painting when I was a young boy, and and so I, you know, I wound up just falling in love with painting. I had no idea I could actually make a living because most people in the rural towns said you couldn't possibly make a living at this. And my mother, who was the first my grandmother's children to get an education had a, in particular a black man economic living selling pictures because I was born in 57. So by the time I was six years old, they had just assassinated 
uh, JFK, and of course, Martin Luther King right around the corner from, from there, and then Robert Kennedy. So right. the age of, uh, I grew up during the age of so-called Camelot. But also, you know, uh, we went to a lot of different art shows, and a lot of times we were the only Black children there. And this was a Caucasian gentleman and his wife who was taking us around. His name was Tom and Tom and Betty Harris. And so that really got me interested in entering art shows and different things like that. And there was one kid who was really, really talented that the community there in Quincy fell in love with. His name was Pete Henson. And uh, he was really the one that they thought would really, really sail. And the other, we were kind of the tag alongs. We weren't as talented and so forth. And uh, But when I got into Columbus College of Art and Design, uh, I recognized that it, it was going to take a lot for me to actually make this thing work. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I grew up poor. I didn't have a lot of exposure to the arts. And when you go to an art school, what happens is, you know, people tell you in your little small community, you're talented, you're this or that. Well, you have no way of measuring that, you know. So, but when you get into a school of the arts, you're involved with all kinds of kids who have had tutors. And so you, you recognize the opportunity that they've had versus what you've had. And so during orientation, they said about half of us wouldn't be back. And they were absolutely right. Half of us were not back. There were only three African-American students that graduated when I graduated in 1980. It was very, very difficult. I was going to drop out. Yeah, I lost about 60 pounds or so after the first semester. It was a lot of stress. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I think people have a very interesting uh, concept about what it takes to be an artist. There is a kind of romantic myth about artists being the sort of quasi, you know, kind of, you know, either eccentric personality or, you know, we fed on that narrative, you know, and and Hollywood has certainly played a a big role in that kind of stuff. But, you know, as we know, uh, in the real world, there's only a few of those that that launch into the stratosphere and usually their, their stories are very, very tragic. And so I decided that, you know, after going Going home, my mother said, well, what else are you going to, what are you going to do? I can't take care of the rest of your life. So I got back on the Greyhound bus and I went back up there and I just put everything I had into it. And I started entering more shows. I got, I wound up getting a gallery when I was like 18 or 19 years old. I had gallery representation up in the panhandle of Florida. Really at 18 and 19. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and that was the result of an art show I entered in up in Panama City at a visual art center, very similar to Punta Gorda. Uh, it, it was the Panama, it was the Panama City Visual Arts Center. And I won a prize. I went up and I got a lot of press. I won an award. And next thing I know, a lady befriended me who was on the board. She thought I was very talented. She was determined to find me a gallery time. There wasn't very many galleries there. And, and the few who were there didn't want to represent artists of color. So she took me up and down the panhandle. And finally, there was a guy who moved there from Miami, who had just moved up and opened up a new gallery. And he ended up representing my work. And that helped me get through college. I would send my assignments and my watercolor down there. And he would sell them. And that helped me stay in school, you know, because I almost got thrown out of school for the lack of having $200. Oh, uh, yeah. And so you would get in line and, and you know, some of the kids, they had their own checking accounts. They would just write their checks out for their tuition. You were there with all of your grants and everything else, and sometimes you didn't have enough money. After you graduated, what happened next? What did you do? And I graduated. I got a job at Hallmark Cards as an illustrator. Didn't really care for illustration, but that was the thing that they said that we should major in because it was very, very difficult to make it as a painter. But that right. was just really very, very difficult. So I got a job as a commercial illustrator at Hallmark Cards for about three years before I got let go from that. Yes. You ran into some tough times. Yeah. Uh, I got fired from that job and uh, find myself depressed and 
just a mess. And, and in the middle of all this, going through a divorce, I had been married once and I ate four and I got, I got a divorce and I wound up in a, in a little small apartment on Armour Boulevard. So remember apartment 913, my little car that I just bought was being broken to so many times. I just left the windows rolled down. Rough area. Yeah. Uh, to keep people from breaking into my automobile. Yeah. So I got real depressed because I had a gallery at that time in, in Kansas City. And when you're not known, people come in and, and you know, the work could be competent, but if people don't know who you are, a lot of times they won't buy your work. And I had a gallery there that had never had an African-American artist in his gallery. And I did a show there. After about six months of work, I made about $750. And I said, oh, this is not going to work. Because people don't realize the gallery at that time was taking 40%. You had to pay for all the framing. So by the time you, you added, they added up the sales and took away all the framing, because nine times out of 10, you're not going to sell all your artwork, but they're going to still take all that framing off of your commission check. Wow. So by the time they did all that, that was what was left. So I thought, oh, I got to figure out something else. That so doesn't I, sound too glamorous, does it? No, no. And so I had to do commercial art to help supplement it. So what worked for you? What clicked for me was the art shows. I remember when I was at Hallmark, I entered an art show in London. I was, uh, I was probably uh, 23 years old. I entered this show and I had about $300 in my account. It cost me $100 to get a professional framed, which I never had to work professional frame on that level. And then it cost me uh, another $100 to ship it to London. So I only had $100 left in my account. So when I found out how much it cost to ship the thing after I got it framed, I thought, oh, maybe I don't know about this London thing. So I took the chance. I sent it over anyway. I got the top prize of $2,000. So I got the top prize. Good for you. Yeah. And then I entered another show in uh, California, National Watercolor Society. I got $1,000. Entered another show in New York, uh, Terrence Galleries, art show or something. I got $1,000 prize. And then a a college purchased the painting for for, for $500. So within, say, three to four months, I had about $4,500 in my account. Now, I would work at Hallmark Cars for a whole month. And I would only bring home about nine hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. So I recognized the power of internet shows. <laughs> so <laughs> I was entering shows like crazy when I got fired. I started thinking, well, I can't always sell my work, but it but it seemed like I'm I'm having better luck uh, winning money than I am selling the paintings. Yeah. So galleries started telling me what to paint, uh, what they thought was sellable. I didn't mm-hmm. like the subject matter, and I. Well, what's the difference between this and being an illustrator? I'm doing what somebody else is wanting. I thought, thought fine art was about, because the gallery kept saying your work is too personal, too personal. Well, you know what fine art is. But apparently, a lot of galleries are very commercial. And so I recognized that, that, that part of it. I decided to enter art shows. So I would enter so many art shows, and I was probably winning between thirty dollars and $40,000 a year in prize money. Wow. And, yeah, and it was difficult to sell the work, but I could win prize money. So That's an impressive amount of money. Yeah, it was. I mean, I was pretty happy with it, actually. I mean, and I would do paintings the same size, like 20 by 30 was a standard size. So when a painting came back, I would just switch it out of the metal frame, put another painting and ship it out. So I was rotating them. Uh, I had a standard size I was working, so I wouldn't have to keep buying a new frame all the time, unless the frame got messed up, because sometimes they get messed up in shipping or something. Uh, but most of the time I would rotate them. I rotated them pretty quickly. Uh, and that saved me money on framing. And so uh, I did that for a number of years. And what happened too was uh, I recognized in the art section in the Kansas City Star where it would list things. I took it upon myself to send in my awards to the art section of the newspaper and they would list my awards. 
They would list their awards in New York and different parts of the country. So the next thing I know, I entered a local show and a girl there who handled some public relations for this organization. She took me under her wing and she said, oh, you're the one that's always wearing these shows. I see you're listing all the time in the art section. She said, I know a writer at the Kansas City Star. Maybe he'll do a story on you. Did a nice big story on me, big story nice. about my awards. And I recognized that, that for me to, to be able to sell my work, it wasn't so much that the work wasn't competent and good, but I had to figure out how to merit serious collectors' attention to want to acquire my work. And because I was poor, I did not come from a wealthy family who could pick up a phone and make phone calls for me and make connections for me. I didn't go to Harvard or Yale, or some Ivy League right. school. So these are parts of the layers of the art world that makes a world of difference when you enter into it. Because these kids who come out of these Ivy League schools, they're already connected in the system. Uh, and I'm not afraid to say that. That is just the reality, people. That is the reality. And so I recognize the reality. So I had to figure out another way in which I could enter the art world. And the only way I knew was to enter these particular kind of competitions. And that began to get me some entree into the art world. And that led to my getting, getting invited to very, very prestigious shows. There was Art for the Parks. I end up winning that award for, it was like $50,000 when I won it for a watercolor. Uh, and then I got invited to a big show called the Hubbard Art Award for Excellence. Top prize was a quarter of a million dollars. I was one of the youngest artists. Uh, Jamie Wyatt was in the show. Andre Wyatt Wyatt. Mm. Yeah, some of the top, uh, Janet Fish, some of the top. And there I was, this 32-year-old kid who had got invited to the show. And that made a huge difference because my painting got, got purchased by the sponsors of the show. And I ended up being one of the top. Uh, six finalists and that made news next thing I know I started getting into these big western art shows which I'm in now uh, and so I ended up crossing over into other areas of my uh, other areas uh, there was one called the, the Denver Rotary Show out in Denver at hosted a realist show with Richard Schmidt and a lot of different uh, top realists who were in this particular show uh, Dan Sprick a lot of these artists I had never heard of but you know, there I was thrusted into that arena and it, it even challenged my sensibility even more so to perfect my work on, on a certain level. So being exposed to, I, I've been really fortunate that those art shows uh, played a huge role in my getting magazines or like with American Artists and Artist Magazine, uh, because those awards were being, they were also publishing catalogs of the award winners. Right. So that served as a way of me using that as also a leverage for publicity. I also use them as leverage to get collectors interested in acquiring the work. Because once it had a little provenance uh, behind it, then a lot of times people will want to collect it because it won an award or something like that, because that, that is provenance. So, uh, so I use that as a, business, as a business mechanism to get my work in front of the right collectors. Very good. Well, we are going to have to take short break. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kit Moran, visual artist and jazz singer, and I listen to Partnership for the Arts talk show. Thank you. That was Kit Moran that you just heard from giving us that nice message. And Kit is quite an interesting woman. She is a playwright, she sings jazz, and she's a, a painter. If you uh, Google Kit Moran, you'll find quite a few things about her, including her, her art and her CD recordings. And right now, folks, we're getting back into the second half of the program. We are talking with Dean Mitchell, accomplished artist who does mostly oil and watercolors. And he was telling us about 
the success that he had winning prizes kind of one after another and big prizes you know, <laughs> if you win. Uh, so now that we're back dean i'm very curious as to how you have structured your life so that you really could put your time and your thought for you to become an accomplished artist you talked about that that started in college that you yes. really said you you gave it your all and right. then you worked for hallmark but that wasn't your your thing really but still you probably had to find time to do the kind of work you wanted to do to perfect your craft. Right. All right. right. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. You know, when I, well, when I started, uh, first of all, when I got to college, I recognized the kids who were very way ahead of me, technically all, all, all kinds of levels in terms of being able to create the, the body of work, first of all. And so I started measuring my abilities with those who came in with advantages way ahead of me. So I decided my goal was to be just as good. Right. Just as good as they were by the time we got out of school. That was my goal. And so I stuck with that. And I didn't hang out and go to clubs. I didn't, you know, I didn't do any extra anything. I stayed in my, in my workspace and I worked. And when I got hired at Hallmark, uh, I didn't buy an automobile. I, I, I caught bus. I caught a bus every day to work. Uh, I was afraid to get a car. That was more responsibility that would that would tie me down with a payment. Right. Uh, and so I stayed away from getting myself into any kind of debt, number one. And so what I would do is I would I worked every night. Every when I worked night. at Hallmark every night. I worked every night. Every and, night I worked. And how much time would you put in? Oh, I would work sometime from maybe I'd get off from work about five o'clock or so, I'd get home about you know, 5.30, quarter six. By seven o'clock, I was at the easel. I would work maybe five hours, wow. sometimes sometimes six. Yeah. And that was every night. And I started off doing that. I didn't delay because I felt if I delayed, chances are I probably wasn't going to do it. Right. Uh, and then I had people wanting to go out and do this and do that. And I didn't want to do that. Uh, and what I did learn too was that it was going to be my worth ethics that were going to get me somewhere. Because, uh, as I said, I was married, and she was 10 years older, and she was very well read and very much into the arts. And she kept saying we needed to network. I would go to these parties where these very wealthy people were, and they weren't going to do anything for me. I just mm -hmm. said to her, I said, these people were rich, they're wealthy, they're not going to do anything for me. Why would they help a young black kid from the South? Why, they don't even know me. I haven't even married anything. And we would go to these things and go to these things. And finally, I said, I got to stop going to this. And this networking thing isn't working, you know? And so I said, the only thing that's going to get me anywhere is that I have to work and I have to prove myself. And so that's what I did. And a lot of my friends, they wanted to go to clubs and they wanted cars and they, you know, I caught buses. I got on the bus with my, with my artwork sometime to take it to the Greyhound bus station and this kind of stuff. They weren't willing to do all that. They weren't willing to sacrifice their weekends. In fact, when I did get let go from Hallmark, I got a call when I finally was able to afford a phone. I got a, I got a call from Tom Harris, who's my junior high school teacher. Uh, he called me up. He said, Dean, this is Tom Harris. I said, hey, Mr. Harris, how are you doing? He said, what are you doing at home? I said, I'm working. He said, but it's like 8 o'clock your time or something or nine o'clock aren't you getting ready to go out or something Mr. Harris, i don't have time for that he just started laughing he said i don't know a kid that's like 25 26 years old staying home doing art on a saturday night so Mr. Harris, this is what i do every night that's that's a lot of discipline dean 
I was a yeah, and Impressive. I had friends. I had friends one who would come. Uh, I remember my friend, my late friend Leroy came, and I got my first museum show. And I asked Leroy to come over and help me load up the the truck. He said, oh, I see, he said, load up the truck. I said, yeah, Leroy got my artwork. So he came over and he helped me. He said, oh my God, you filled a U-Haul truck. That's over 150 paintings here. I said, well, yeah, Leroy, I got a show. He said, but how in the world do you create 150 paintings? I said, by working. And then <laughs> yeah. I had another gal, I had my, one of my first galleries in, in, in Manhattan, Kansas, really got me going too. Uh, after our show, I entered there locally. Her name was Julie Strecker. Julie would come in from Manhattan, Kansas, which would be a couple hour drive to, to where I was living at in Kansas City and pick up the artwork. And she said to me, she said, artists were complaining that the Strecker Gallery has become the Dean Mitchell Gallery. She said, what? She said, well, you're, you know, you're always having these shows and this show sell out and this and that. So Julie said they were complaining. She said, well, she said, have you been to Dean Mitchell studio? She said, when I come, when I, when I come here to pick up artwork in Kansas City, Dean Mitchell's got 20, 30, 40 paintings. I come here to your studio, you got three or four, you know, <laughs> if even that, you know. So she said, he works. You guys, you guys are all working. She said, right. so it's not that it's Dean Mitchell Gallery. It's says that Dean Mitchell's prolific and Dean Mitchell's willing to sit there in his studio and do the work. And so I found out that work ethics play a huge role in this. And so when people would come to the show, they would see such a large body of work and it was pretty eclectic in subject matter. It was pretty eclectic in, in terms of mediums because I did sketches, I did drawings, I did acrylics, I did watercolors, I did pen and inks. I did all kinds of medium because I felt like I had to show a broad range of my abilities. I had to figure out a way to, in some ways, mesmerize the collector to buying my work. Mm. That I had to not, I couldn't do one subject. I couldn't do one theme. I had to master different ways of communicating a variety of subjects. And that, because sometimes people come in, they don't like a certain subject, they don't like a certain color, they don't like this, they don't like that. Well, I'm not gonna tailor my work to them, but what I can do is I can make the collection of, of my expression as broad on a perfected level that pe when people walk in, because people say, he just he can do anything. They and so that was part of the people wanting the work. They said, God, this kid does everything. What, what can you, is he sculpting too? You know, they would ask stuff like that. So that was part of, and that was also part of my, my, my entree into what you would call the art critic. You know, they would come to my shows sometimes they come, they would kind of, kind of diss me sometime with being uh, too much like Wyatt or too much like Hopper or too much like this or that. They were kind of just like Mitchell is, hasn't found his own voice and hasn't this and that. They were so stuff, but then they were just so taken by my skills, you know, that they, they would just, you know, you know, it was, it was really interesting, you know, how they would assess the work, you know, and, and they would compare me to, you know, some Vermeer, but, and, and, and in some ways, I kind of like the comparison because, you know, uh, it wasn't about mimicking anybody, it was that I wanted to show people that I, yes, I am able to push paint on a perfected level, and I will choose my form of expression and how I want to communicate that, whether it's realism or abstraction or pushing the boundaries slightly, I have those capabilities. And so when they walk in 
And then they start talking to me. You start talking about different art movements and stuff like that, these art critics and stuff. Suddenly they back off and they start, they start looking at your work a little bit different. They start communicating with you a little differently because they realize you're not just a, just a young kid from the South who uh, grew up in a, in a little, little, little small rural town that doesn't know anything about the art world because I read a lot. I read a lot about different forms of expression. I, I read a lot about how those movements took ground, how certain wealthy people enveloped those movements and to give, an, give America an international voice in the international marketplace with Peggy Guggenheim, Marth Rothko and all these people who were all associated with one another. It's, it's this New York movement. I, I've read all about all that stuff. And I, I understand the power and manipulation of New York over the art world. You know, and every place has it. Paris has it. You know, you know, now it's L.A. and New York. So what did you learn from all of that? And so I recognize uh, that where you live matters, where you go to school matters. You don't like to talk about it because then what happens is now you got to discuss class. Now you got to discuss a lack of people having access ability to things. And so a lot of times people are very, very uncomfortable with that and all these things, but they don't really tell you the mechanics of how this is happening for them. They're, you know, when you have an institution behind your name, it's not, when you got Harvard, let's face it, it's not just you, you have now a certain stamp of approval in the art world. And that is the reality. I don't have that. So what I have is my talent, my ability to read and understand how the art world works and not be naive about it. I'm not putting the art world down. It is what it is. And a lot of things are ran this way. You know, there is classism all over the world. We, we can see that in terms of job opportunities. We can see it in terms of education opportunities. I recognized that early on in my career working in tobacco when I was a young kid. I didn't grow up with a privileged lifestyle. So I got to figure out how do I use my sense of business how do I use my time to more efficiently? You know, when you're running a race, if that person is 20 miles ahead of you, you got to figure out how to accelerate, how to put some gas to the pedal to catch up. And so I figured out how to do that. Well, we are going to have to take a short break. We'll be right back. I'm Janet Watermeyer, Executive Director of the Visual Arts Center, and I listen to Partnership for the Arts talk show. Welcome back. Once again, this is Victor Gartner, your host for Where We Talk Art. Thank you, Janet Watermeyer, for that message. Janet is the executive director of the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda, Florida. And so we have a very special guest today, Dean Mitchell. If you don't mind, I would like to ask you a little bit about your role in the National Art Exhibit that occurred here at the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda. You were the juror. Yeah, yeah. And so that means that hundreds of pictures of art by the, by the artists themselves were sent to you, uh, each of them hoping that uh, you would judge their work to be worthy of being included in the National Art Exhibit show, which we have here every two years. And I'm wondering how you were able to separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. You know, you, you, you can't spend hours and hours looking at each each photo that you know you'd still be doing it if that was so 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 how did you to, to glean off what you considered to be the best of the crop there well you know you go through a, a series of first of all you you look at the entire group of paintings and even from the first from the first viewing i can i can definitely tell what will not be in right away 
And yeah, it's usually based on the lack of composition, uh, technical ability, uh, color, harmony. There's all kind of, there, there are fundamentals that I look at and I can see because I've seen so much art and so many different kinds of art and so many different forms of expression through my travel internationally through different museums and different places that I've traveled throughout the world. Uh, it's, you know, you train your eye when you see a lot of art in museums and the best of what's being done by the human hand, uh, your eye just becomes immediately uh, affected in some way. The knowledge is there sometimes intuitively. Sometimes the work doesn't always have to be totally accurate in terms of realism, but there is an emotional content in it. There is a sense of humanity in the thing uh, that uh, it does, it's not always about just the fundamentals. Sometimes uh, the fundamentals get tossed uh, about somewhat in a more obscure abstract way, but the work has a haunting, uh, moving quality about it that it pulls you into it. This is how really this is really how different movements occurred. You're pushing against the, the basic fundamentals and breaking rules and, and, and following and finding new movements. So I look at all aspects of things when I look at something. And then uh, then it comes down to I look at the brushwork, I look at the medium. Is the artist, is the artist, I can look at a work and look at the brushwork and tell whether the artist knows what he's doing or whether there's a certain amount of uncertainty in the work based on the swiftness of the stroke, uh, based upon the clarity of the stroke. Uh, I can tell whether the artist is assured of what he's doing. You know, even if it's wrong, if it's wrong, uh, sometimes you can do things that are, that are kind of poetically wrong, if that makes any sense. You can create works that way but there's a certain rhythm and harmony to that work. But then when you have someone trying to achieve a certain level of realism and perfectionism, you recognize the uncertainty in that as well. So I can go from one extreme to the next. So I kind of, I kind of, you know, and then you could have another judge who could see things totally different. You know, right. it is based upon my subjective opinion about a work. Uh, I've had works that have been rejected and getting something win top award. So it's it, it it also depends on the jury and what they're looking for and the overall body of work that has been submitted. So there's a there's a lot of layers to it, uh, actually, a lot of layers to it. Well, when when you look at a piece of art, let's let's say the one that won best in show, I believe, mm -hmm. was the one called Long Island City. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was a night scene. Uh, you were able to look in in the apartment windows that were the apartments yeah. that were in the foreground with interesting things going on inside the apartments. There was a train going by um, and all of it was done with a lot of craftsmanship. I have to, I have to say. Yes, skilled, absolutely. Very skilled. And, and I looked so carefully at that painting to, to see if I could find brush strokes, which would give me a little bit of a, of a hint of how he applied the paint. Son of a gun, I cannot see any brush strokes. Yeah, I mean, again, yeah, see, uh, again, uh, but if you looked at the overall work, it was consistent. Oh, absolutely. Consistency. And then there was, uh, to me, there was the complexity of the commentary of, mod of the modern day world that, that really attracted to me and the kind of uh, interesting cluttered space. Uh, you know, and I thought about, I didn't know it was New York, but I did think about uh, major cities being like a metropolis uh, where you got people on top of people. And yet, and still, if you looked at uh, the people, there were somewhat, there was a certain kind of isolation too, you know, uh, although That's they true. had all these things yes. going on, but there was, there was still a lot of activity, but a sense of isolation. 
And so that too kind of spoke to me in terms of the pandemic and what had, what had been going on, uh, not just here, but throughout the world. So, I, so that, it had a lot of interesting uh, layers for me emotionally as a painter looking at it. It wasn't just uh, the skill set, but it was the complexity of the modern day world that, that really appealed to my sensibility. Yes. Dean, I have one last question for you. Not necessarily an easy question, but a question that I ask myself so many times, what is art? <laughs> what is art? Oh man. I don't know. I guess for me as a painter, art is art is life. Uh it is everything that makes life livable. That's hmm. what art is. Everything that makes life livable. Yes. Okay. Imagine the world without art. Imagine it. Just imagine it. That means Somebody had to create those letters. Mm -hmm. Somebody had to create that building, the concept of the building. Somebody had to even sports. Somebody had to create a, you know, there's, there's drawings and the automobile, there's drawings. Before there was modern architecture, there was modern art. And so art is woven into every fabric of our lives. Your yeah, shirt that sure. you wear, your, it, it affects you emotionally. When you walk out into an environment, you see how exquisitely it's designed and, and the trees and the way they place the elements. I mean, moving through a city, even moving through your own home and how you move through a home that is gracefully designed. You go, oh my, this is so beautiful. You walk into something and it just does something for your spirits. Yes. So it is, it is an inescapable part of being human. It is. It is. And thank you for that. Dean, is there anything you would like to add before we sign off? Um, and I, you know, I, I want to say I do believe that if anything, anything can stop wars mm. and devastation, it is art. That is the answer. Thank you. Amen. Yes. Dean, we had a very good talk. I, I'm really so happy that we had this time together. I got to know you a little bit better and uh, you are a soulful person. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say that. Yes. And I wish you well. I, I hope that uh, we can touch base again sometime in the, in the future as you're continuing your endeavors until we meet again. Thank you so much for being part of this show. On behalf of Visual Arts Center and Partnership for the Arts, thank you so much. Take care and be well. You too. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Well, everyone, we'll catch up with you next time when you join us once again for Where We Talk Art. Thanks for listening to the Partnership for the Arts talk show. 